0: Wow, that bumper video was a lot shorter than the ones we saw before that. (laughs) It was a bit long. Good morning, Trinity Church. I'm Thad Riley. I am the secretary for the Elder Board, and it's a privilege to be up here. And it is my privilege to introduce to you Doug Baker. Got to put my glasses on. So Doug received his doctorate from Trinity (laughs) Evangelical Divinity School. And wrote his thesis to offer help for parents in discipling of their children. Doug and his wife Lisa have been members of Trinity since October of this last year. They've been married for 38 years and have two grown daughters and two energetic grandsons. Very energetic. Okay. During 33 of those years, half of which were with EV Free Church, they served in the pastorate providing biblical counseling and coaching to both premarital and married couples. Now, for some fun facts about Doug and Lisa. Oh, dear. Lisa is a professional harpist and teacher who owns 10 harps. It's a crowded house. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like they they make a special beef jerky from a special recipe they've had for the past 30 years. Happy to share. Uh, The recipe, that is. (laughs) (laughs) Doug is a trained disaster relief (laughs) chaplain, and their lifetime goal is to travel every U.S. national park and camp and so far, Yosemite is their favorite. Yeah, good, California. definitely. Doug, thank you. Thank no, you. No, more, more.
1: Well, good morning, Trinity Church. How are you? I'm going to miss Todd saying that every week. I don't know about you, but we have so much appreciated Todd and his family. And in fact, last week, my wife and I went up to him and, and we just told him, Todd, thank you so much. We've only been here a short period of time, but. We feel like you've really ministered to us. By the way, I asked him, What size shoe do you wear? And he said, He laughed. He said, You're not afraid of filling my shoes next week, are you? (laughs) I said, Of course I am. You have great teaching. But here's the thing when a pastor departs, he always takes his shoes with him. And what we are left with are the footprints of Jesus. We are the church. And we have a great elder board, we have wonderful ministering directors and people who are engaged in all kinds of ministries, we have you to be here. And so I find great hope and joy in the fact that God is leading us and he's our great shepherd. Amen Amen to that. My name is Doug Baker. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, just this week about being here this morning and He's a lifetime friend from early years, and he said, Doug, I want you to think this week when you get up on the stage, I want you to look around and say to yourself, God is going to change someone here this morning, and they will never again be the same. I want you to think about that, Doug. So as I thought about it, I realized, you know what, it's actually for all of us. I hope you leave here this morning transformed in your heart and in your mind as you think about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did this week of the Passion. Todd uh, left us off this last week in uh, John chapter 18, verse 27. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them to uh, John chapter 18? I'm going to get my timer started. No guarantees that I'll stick totally with it. Oh, my goodness. It says I have 13 hours and 39 minutes. Let's change that. (laughs) There we go. Get the 13 hours off of there. You'll be much relieved. Okay. (laughs) Okay. When you look at the Gospels, you find that they have this this story of the week of the crucifixion, the, the passion that leads up to that moment on the cross. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are fairly consistent in recording all of the details. But then you get to John, the best friend of Jesus. And he, of the 10 events that are occurring in the 12 hours leading up to the cross, he only records just a little more than half of them. That would be like if you're uh, reading The Lord of the Rings, and it doesn't start with The Hobbit. It begins with The Return of the King. Wouldn't that feel weird? And John does that. In fact, I want to rehearse for you just briefly the, the things that he doesn't include in his gospel. So number one, as we take a look at John 18, is this. He does not include... Judas' remorse It's not in the gospel of John Matthew records it in Matthew 27 3 and he says that when Jesus Was finally handed over to Pilate Judas became Remorseful, took the 30 Pieces of silver, hurled them on the floor Of the temple, declared I have uh, Denied an unjust or An a, uh, innocent man And he went out and hanged himself This is a, a powerful Fulfillment of prophecy, but John Ignores it completely in his gospel. The second event that he does not include is the huge number of witnesses. So if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that there is this wave of witnesses coming before Pilate. You're not going to see that in John. In fact, the other gospels call it the polloi which was a mass, a multitude. It was wave after wave of fake newsers insinuating and blaspheming against Jesus. This was like the I-10 at Eucaipa Boulevard at 3.30 in the afternoon. It was just this this mass of people who were coming. John omits it. Why? He omits the fact that Pilate's wife comes to Pilate. This is such an intriguing little tidbit that is thrown into uh, Matthew. And Luke, it's it's when Pilate's wife has this, what she calls a horrible nightmare, a dream, about Jesus, whom she calls a righteous man. And she comes to Pilate and she says, hey, hey, don't have anything to do with this man. I have been tormented because of this dream. John lets that drop to the cutting room floor. And the fourth and most significant thing that John does not include is a quote from Daniel 7. In fact, if we can throw that up on the screen, I don't want you to read it just yet, but what I want you to hear is this. The high priest at Caiaphas' home was desperate to pin something on Jesus, and so his final accusation as he comes before Pilate is this. He says to Pilate, this man claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 25, when he says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus responds to him one final time, it's the seventh time in the book of John, he says to him, Ego, Emi, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is an incredibly important statement for us. Look at Daniel 7. Daniel is prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the one who would rescue Israel. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Whoa. Wow. Wow. Pause for a second. Think about this. Daniel, who hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment when Jesus stands before Pilate, wrote that one who would be like a son of man would come before the Ancient of Days for a specific purpose. What was the most common name that Jesus referred to himself by? Son of man. Why would he do that? Because in his mind, he went back to Daniel 7. I am that son of man. Look at the next Section, verse 14. And to this one was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations and peoples and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his king, one that shall not be destroyed. His kingdom not be destroyed. John doesn't utter a whisper about that. Gosh, why? Why would these other details be left out of his record? It's because he had a more significant focus. Something else he wanted to tell us. It was like the return of the king. He wanted to get to that so quickly. So here's our first thought for the day. John ignores other factual aspects of Jesus' day before Pilate. Why? In order to offer a new focus to us. That Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, brings to us one incredibly necessary thing, which we all need to embrace in order to live life well, both now and eternally. He brings absolute truth. That was John's intent. He skips all this other stuff, which is so important, because he wanted to hone in on this one thing. So Jesus tells Pilate, and this is what sets John's account from everything else, that Jesus came to bring us absolute truth. Look at John 18, 28. Let's get into our passage. The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was very early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, They didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate comes out to them and asks, What charges are you bringing against this man? And their reply is so generalized. Well, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Not a lot of substance there. Pilate said, Well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They replied, We have no right to execute anyone This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. These religious leaders desperately wanted two things. They wanted to condemn Jesus to a crucifixion, and they wanted to eat the Sabbath Passover that evening. So to condemn Jesus to execution, they had to take him to Pilate, the governor. They had to go to the praetorium the palace of the governor. But they didn't really want to go inside because those homes had not been cleaned of all the leaven, which was part of the Passover process. So they knew that to go inside would be to contaminate themselves. So what do they do? Well, if you're in Paraguay and you want to get the attention of a homeowner, you come to the front gate, the front wall, and there is no doorbell, but you stand there, That is the doorbell. And the owner inside hears it. Now, he has the option to stay inside or to come out, depending on who he thinks is at his gate. I don't know what they did, but in some way, they got Pilate's attention. I also don't know if he was a morning person. (laughs) This is very early in the morning. They've been having these trials all night long. And they come to his residence, and they get his attention, and he comes out. I want you to notice that By approaching Passover in this way, they were missing the entire point of Passover. You remember Passover from the Old Testament was a time when God declared freedom for the Israelites in Egypt and the end of slavery. He saved them after 430 years of being enslaved in Egypt. And God finally said, I'm sending a deliverer. This angel of death will come in the middle of the night and if he sees the blood on the doorposts of your home, the sides, the header, and the dripping down to the lintel, he will pass over you and you will be delivered from death. The Jewish people followed the protocols, they obeyed the word of God. But it tells us in Exodus 12, verse 30, that a great cry went up in Egypt, for there was not a single house. Where someone was not dead. Can you imagine that? Talking to your neighbors. Yeah, my my oldest child died too. The oldest goat died. Everything oldest died. All the firstborns are gone. Every home. Can you imagine the stench in Egypt. As this angel of death delivers the Jews. And brings punishment. On the Egyptians. And yet here the Jewish leaders are doing the very same thing in reverse. They are pursuing the death of an innocent man while they themselves are still enslaved to this man-made misconception about purity. They weren't watching for God's deliverer. They were watching out for themselves. If you go back to Exodus 12, verse 42, you find a very fascinating statement. You find that this command is given to the Jewish people, and it says, in essence, God has watched over you, so now, for every generation preceding, you must watch for God. And they'd forgotten that. We're supposed to watch for God? What is he going to do? He's going to bring another deliverer. He's going to bring the Messiah, who will deliver you from death. And somehow, they just had forgotten all of that. And so, by watching out for their own interests... They missed what God was doing, shedding his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Guys, if we can throw the Passover slide up there. Exodus 12, 13, this great chapter on the deliverance of the Passover, says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's fascinating to me that when you look at the, the front door of the homes, God said, put the blood on the sides, which, by the way, is exactly where the hands of Jesus would have been. And put the blood on the header, which is where his crown of thorns would have been. And the blood will drip down to the lintel, which is where his feet would have been. What an incredible picture for the Jewish people. And Jesus' death is going to mirror that for them. So what should have been a powerful deliverance for them, this prediction of the coming messiah is actually for them more of a mere concern about cleanliness and they miss it may i ask us today is it still possible to respond to god with religious rules rather than the passion of a heart for god could it still be true today that we can become more focused on external perceptions of how we and others should act and what we should do, rather than this inner pursuing of an experience of God's transforming power? Is it still likely today that the expectations we have for our church leaders or for our church congregation can become focused more on how they should look or what they should do or not do, rather than on what God calls them and us to be, light and love in the world? I like what William Barclay has to say in his uh, daily Bible study. It's up here on the screen for you. In looking at this passage, he says, Now see what the Jews were doing. They were carrying out the details of the ceremonial law with meticulous care. And at the same time, they were hounding to the cross the Son of God. That is just the kind of thing that men are always liable to do. Many a church member fusses about the surest trifles and breaks God's law of love and of forgiveness. And of service every day. There is even many a church in which the details of a pastor's clothing, the church furnishings, the order of service, the events of the church are attended to with the most detailed care, and where the spirit of love and fellowship are conspicuous only by their absence. One of the most tragic things in the world is how the human mind can lose its sense of proportion and its ability to put first things first. I think he's right. So at this point, the religious uh, leaders are asked by Pilate, so what is the accusation? You see it in your text. And their answer is, well, we, we, uh, we don't actually have one uh, specific charge. But if you look at him, you can obviously see he's evil and dangerous. Uh, we wouldn't have brought him to, here to you unless he was. They use the Greek word kakon, kakon, which meant worthless, depraved. Morally bankrupt, injurious to others, and oppressive. In other words, they're saying, look, you can see this guy has bad news. He's a good-for-nothing, empty-headed, gang-banging loser. I like the way Pilate responds. He's no dummy. He didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. He's been around the block a few times. He knows what side of the toast his butter is on. Which, by the way, I've never understood that. Have you? Maybe it's such an old phrase, it's just lost its meaning because I know where the butter is on my toast. <laughs> but he's no dummy. He responds to them, look, no, 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 no. This is not my problem. Judge him by your own law. I'm, I'm not going to take any responsibility for this. And their response is we can't. It's not legally lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, there's a couple things off about this. First of all, They really hadn't followed the law in any of the trials. The law of Moses stated that if you're going to try a criminal, it had to be during the daytime, because he had to have the opportunity to bring witnesses in his defense. But all of Jesus' witnesses are fast asleep or departed, run away. So middle of the night trials were illegal. They didn't follow the law. The law also said you have to have two witnesses in full agreement on every detail of what they had observed. And none of their witnesses, none of those people on I-10 at the Yucaipa Boulevard could agree on anything. So they really didn't obey the law. They weren't following the law. But what they wanted was this. They wanted a Roman spectacle, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They wanted an example made of him using the most violent, painful, excruciating death possible. Let's remind ourselves briefly of what a crucifixion involved. It was primarily a death by asphyxiation. So as you're hanging on the cross, the weight of your body is pulling, sagging downward, and you can't breathe. So to breathe, you pull yourself back up and gasp for air, and then your body sags again. So it was mainly a death by Asphyxiation. It was a death over a period of time. Now, Jesus dies the same day that he is crucified. Most crucified criminals were on the cross from two to seven days. It was a humiliating death. You were crucified stark naked and at eye level. You know, I love the song, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Well, that wasn't how they crucified criminals. They put them on the roadside. So if this was the road to Jerusalem, you'd be walking along and you would see him right here. A couple of feet away, you'd see his face. You'd see the sweat. You'd see the crows picking at his, uh, at his eyes, at his lips. And there's nothing he could do. And Rome was saying to you as an individual, you need to conform. Because if you don't, this is you. And crucifixions were common in that day. It was very easy to go into Jerusalem and see a crucified individual. So it was a death of asphyxiation. It was a death that was agonizing. It was death that was humiliating. And when they would put the nails in your hands and in your feet, they would put them right here. Now, we often see them in pictures in the hand, but this is, this is too soft. It would tear away. They put it between the two bones here, which is where your nerve is. And they would cross your feet and put them through the ankle, where your nerve is. You ever had nerve pain? Doctors and scientists tell us there is no pain in the world like it other than maybe childbirth, and I haven't gone there. So I can't can't say for sure. But nerve pain is excruciating. It shoots up and down the body. It's fiery. It's like lightning within. And they knew how to kill a person and make it hurt. So that's really what the Jews wanted. Second, not only did they not obey the law of Moses, it was legally permissible for them to put someone to death. Think about... The woman who was brought to Jesus caught in adultery. What do they want to do with her? Stone her. And this was their method of execution. It was a lot quicker as far as uh, the criminal was concerned. And Jesus stopped them. You remember in the book of Acts, when Stephen is giving his incredible message, what do they do to him? They stone him. In fact, they tried to stone Jesus one or two times. John chapter 10 tells us when he declared himself to be God, they picked up stones to stone him. So the desire of these men to kill him was not news. Matthew 20, 19, Luke 18, 32, tell us that Jesus had already told his disciples three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested and tried and killed. In fact, Matthew and Luke use the words crucify and kill. John does not. He doesn't use those words. Do you know the word he uses for crucifixion? He says, Jesus will be lifted up as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. John chapter 3, this will be on the screen for us up here. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And here's that classic verse you see at football games, and we all know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the very next verse says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. So by putting it this way, lifting up Christ, John wants to remind us of a couple of things very important things. First of all, and this is not news to us in the Christian church, this was to be a salvific event. This moment on the cross was designed by God before the creation of the world to save humanity from death. And Jesus knew that he was going to die. He not only knew he was going to die, he knew when he would die and how he would die and where he would die. May I ask you, how many of you know When, where, and how you will die. None of us do, do we? And here's the thing if we did know, wouldn't we try to avoid it? We wouldn't buy a ticket for that airline flight, we would leap out of the way of the speeding ice cream truck. We would avoid that deadly sequence of events, wouldn't we? We would avert exposure to that disease. We would choose a different hospital if we knew when, where, and how we would die. Jesus knew all of that. It says in our text that he knew he would be crucified, and this was to describe the kind of death that he would die. In fact, I love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, because that passage tells us that when he looked at the cross, it didn't terrify him. It filled him with an indescribable joy and it's because he's going to be lifted up therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses those who have gone before us who have passed away and who have said to us by their lives you can do this let us throw off everything that hinders us and so the sin that so easily uh, entangles us next slide and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us Let's live the Christian life the way it was designed. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He got us started on this journey. He's going to make it perfect at the end. But notice it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Daniel 7 again. Can we understand that? I would not look forward to the cross as a moment of joy. I can think of a lot of other places I'd like to be that would be joyful, but not that. How could he think of it as joy? Paul writes in Ephesians 4.18. Uses the exact same word out of John 3 of being lifted up. He uses a little different phrase in the English, but it's the same Greek term. Notice what it says in Ephesians 4. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended, this is lifted up, to the heights, he led captivity captive. All the things that hold us captive, all the struggles that we have, all of the habits that are so destructive in our lives, he took that and he led it captive, and then he gave gifts to people. Notice that it says he was lifted up, he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lower world, and the same one who descended is the one who was lifted up, Sotho. He was the one who was ascended, higher than all the heavens. Why? That he might fill the entire universe with himself. Oh, I love that. There will not be a part of our incredible universe, even what the James Webb telescope sees, that is not filled with the essence of who Jesus is. And then he turns around and it says he gave to the church gifts. Gifts. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility. So do you know what the job description is for your pastors? Here it is. To equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full, complete standard Of Christ. Do you want that? I want that. I want to be like Jesus. And it comes through the community of our church life. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Word of God. And as Jesus goes in to see Pilate, this is what he's thinking. This joy will be mine. It'll be salvific, it'll be transformative. That is love. Let's come back to our text, John 18, Pilate went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, so is, is that your own idea? What are you asking, Pilate? Where did you get that? Did somebody tell you about that? Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Now, you may be wondering what I'm wondering is, is that Isn't that a a strange place to begin an interrogation? Are you the king of the Jews? Isn't it normally a good cop, bad cop kind of thing? You know, you're digging at the details, you finally get the the exposure of the crime. Well, perhaps that was just the right place for Pilate to start. Luke 23 tells us that when the Jewish leaders came in, John doesn't record this, the, the multitude of witnesses and the accusations, But they laid out three specific, at least three specific accusations. Number one, political sedition. Number two, paying taxes to Rome. And the kicker, what caught Pilate's attention was this one. Jesus himself said that he was the Christ, a king. And so he asks Jesus. Now in the Greek it's different. In the Greek language, the very first word you see in a sentence is the emphasis. They don't follow subject, verb, object. In the Greek language, the first word is, is, this is the important thing. So in the English, it reads, are you the king of the Jews? The verb is first. But in the Greek, it says, you, you're the king of the Jews? Jesus didn't look like a king. Remember, he came from Caiaphas. He's dressed like a Galilean. And at Caiaphas' home, it says in the other Gospels that he was blindfolded and beaten. Who is beating you? Prophesy. He was spit on. He was humiliated. He was shamed. And in many ways, he was prepped to confess before Pilate. So he doesn't look like a king. And Pilate looks at him, and he says, you? You're the king? Now, I noticed, notice what Jesus does. He always does this he turned the conversation right back at Pilate and he says so Pilate are you asking for yourself or did did you just hear this on the street Jesus wanted to investigate Pilate's heart this is not an investigation of Jesus this is all about Pilate and what his heart is like Pilate are you open to having me as your king Is that why you're asking? Are you willing to trust and follow me? Are you inquiring about my kingship for yourself? Or are you just a parrot for other people? And of course his response negates any type of self-examination. Steers away from the idea of kingship and he says to him, you've done something wrong, what's your crime? Here's our second thought for the morning. God is always supremely interested in our understanding of openness to, and conviction about his kingship over our lives. He's always interested in that. doesn't matter if you're a despot like Pilate or you are desperate like many of us. He wants to know, is Jesus your king? Now, I'll be honest with you. This was a struggle for me. I came to believe in Jesus Christ as a five-year-old after an evening Sunday service. ABCs, right down the line. And through elementary school and middle school and high school, I I served and I loved being in the church. I loved having a faith in Christ. But Jesus was not my king at that time. It was still me. And I went to college to Moody Bible Institute. Wanted to be a MAF pilot. That was so exciting. The thought of using tools and adventure and different things to do every day and fixing things. And I got to Moody and I... uh, I washed out of the MAF program, which interestingly didn't bother me, because from the age of 13 I'd wanted to do that, but I decided to stay at Moody, and at that time Moody had two courses, missionary, pastor. I went, oh gosh, Uh, I I don't know, I I decided I'll be a youth pastor, which Josh, nothing against youth pastors at all, but I thought, I I don't want to be up in front of people, I don't want to be a preacher doing what I'm doing right now, right? Right? Because it's long hours and a lot of meetings and the possibility of personality conflicts and all that stuff. So my entire time at Moody, I decided I am not taking any course that even smells like pastor. (laughs) I got to my senior year. And to graduate, you had to take senior preaching. Oh, man. Oh, man. So I reluctantly signed up for it and I got into class and the very first day and every day of that class, my professor, Douglas Gallagher, a former professional hockey player from Canada, would come into class and he would say, I love preaching. And I would say, yeah, but I don't. (laughs) That's not me. Till about halfway through. And God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, But he said, Doug, this is what I want for you. Stop fighting me. Oh, gosh. Now I have to go to seminary. I avoided Greek. I avoided Hebrew. I avoided everything else. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you've been king? and you've been just a little nervous about giving God control because there's so much of life left. Young people, I know that feeling. There's so much you could yet do. I mean, God, could I have this time for me, and later on it's for you? No, God isn't content with that. He wants to be king now. I know for myself it was, I don't want to commit to that one thing. I I want the freedom to make choices. But in that class, at that time, God said, I have to be king of your life. And I will tell you, looking back now over 33 years of ministry that my wife and I had with our daughters, it was worth it. It was a lot of work. But the joy that lingers is the same joy that Jesus had when he faced the cross. Let's take a look back at our text. How am I doing on time? I still have 12 hours. Good. <laughs> No, seven minutes. We're going to wrap this up. (laughs) Look at verses 36 through 40. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Oh, good. Thank God. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, said Pilate, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Now, we would say today, you said it. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate's response is, what is truth? You see, the Roman elites at that time didn't even believe in the gods. They were so exhausted of that religious pursuit. And so they just gave up. There is no truth, there's no absolutes, there's no gods, it's just me and life. And so he says this with a hint of sarcasm, but also sadness. What is truth? Jesus' answer to him is, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king. Yes, I have a kingdom. But no, it's not of this world, this cosmos. So it's not a political power right now, although in the Millennium Kingdom, it will be the political power. And it's not a social construct right now. It's not this international culture, although the gospel impacts every person in every culture in all places. And Jesus says, if it were a kingdom of this world, guess what, Pilate? My servants would fight to prevent what's happening right now. Jesus, at this point, borrows words out of Pilate's world. He says, my servants. This is the Greek word under rower. Hupsotho. Under rower. Guys, can you throw the slide up there for us? This was an under rower. In fact, you'll probably remember this. From the movie ben-hur the romans had and greeks also had what they called triremes they were ramming warships they were only designed to ram other ships and they had three levels of rowers so you see the top rower here on the left ben-hur in the middle handsome guy and on the right hand side are the bottom under rowers it was the worst place on the boat to be you couldn't see out and all you could do was row like crazy they would get up to 12 miles an hour with these ships And Jesus says, my under rowers, folks, who is that? That's us. Would fight to prevent this. If my kingdom were here. He uses the word for conflict in the stadium. My gladiators would fight for me. Take a look on the screen here. There's the ship. There's the stadium. Why does he speak in these words? You don't see Jesus using these words anywhere else in the New Testament. You hear doulos and other words for servant or slave, but not hupsotho, not gladiator. Is because for a couple reasons. He wanted to get at Pilate's heart and say to him, Pilate, I know how things work in this world. I have servants who will row to the death for me, to the beat of my drum, I as their captain to victory. And I have soldiers, gladiators, who would fight in the stadium for me if my kingdom were here. So we're not fighting for a political world. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, are we? Our battle is against supernatural powers. And this is where he brings his conversation for Pilate back to a very clear voice. Guys, we're going to skip Titus too. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came. Born in Bethlehem as the king of the Jews, that's his physical human identity, came from where? From heaven. So we see the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ one last time for Pilate. I was born for this purpose. What is his purpose? Folks, why did Jesus come? Was it to become a king? No. He was declared that in Bethlehem by the Magi. We're seeking the one born king of the Jews. No, he came for one purpose, and he says it right after this statement. He says, I have come to be a witness to the truth. So how does that understanding intersect with our grasp of absolute truth? By the way, you realize that in our nation, 58% 58% of the people reject the idea of absolute truth. That's 6 out of every 10 people. There is no idea that is true for all people at all times and all places. It doesn't exist. He says, "I testify to absolute truth." And he spoke of that often. Look at John 8:38. He says, "I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence in heaven." John 12 Verse 49, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So here's the thing. Ultimate truth, absolute truth, is never discovered. It is always revealed from heaven. You see why Jesus had to come? Because we ourselves in our world cannot find truth that is true for all people at all times and all places. It doesn't exist without the revelation of Jesus Christ, of what exists in heaven. So he came from heaven to declare to us truth that we need to have to live life. And this is why so many people in our country and around the world cannot find absolute truth. They have rejected the source of absolute truth, Jesus Christ. And this is where we find it as his followers, as his underrowers. Adrian Rogers says the great problem in America today is truth decay Where everything is unraveling before us and if anyone stands for truth He looks like he or she is bigoted and we're all supposed to get along But I'm going to tell you he says it is better To be divided by truth than to be united in error Amen our job today is not ultimately to save America. Our first responsibility is not to preserve our freedoms as important as they are. Our prime responsibility is to stand for Christ and witness to this world of His grace and His power and His truth. So here's our last thought for the day. If you're ever uncertain of what is true, the key to finding it will not be a Google search, a public opinion poll, or your own point of view. Rather, It will be found in the words of Jesus, God's supreme witness about what is true in heaven and also thus what is true here. This section ends with a choice, Jesus or Barabbas. Look at that. See what 33 years of pastoral ministry will do to you? (laughs) That's kind of a welcome sound, isn't it? Oh, he's wrapping up. I had a professor who said that the toughest part of a sermon is learning when to land the plane. <laughs> you know, my last point. My last point truly is this. In the moments just before his passion begins, Jesus is still reaching out to lost and confused people, to Pilate, inviting them in, asking them to believe. If that isn't Jesus, turn it off asking them to believe and offering them new life. What love is this? Let's pray. Father God, before the foundation of the world, you and the Holy Spirit and Jesus confabbed, talk together. How do we rescue humanity who will fall into sin, who will be separated from eternal life, who will be Shut off from us. What can we do? Well, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, Jesus, go. Be born, live, and die for the sins of humanity. And, Father, in just a short period of time, we are going to celebrate Good Friday and Easter. And, God, we want it to renew in us this sense that we are committed to a kingdom that is incredible it's not of this world but God it is of eternity and we want to be a part of it we want you to be our king and honestly folks if, if you're here this morning and you, you've never even accepted his gift of forgiveness oh we, we urge you to do so to believe that you are a sinner and in need of change and transformation you're not perfect accept that Believe that Jesus Christ is the only salvation for what we need the most and choose to accept that. And folks, if Jesus is not your king, may you choose to let him rule on the throne of your heart. And in doing so, find the joy that Jesus experienced himself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.